In the last episode, we considered placement for kids who have athletic talents that play a role in college admissions. Today, we look at another avenue, perhaps even more challenging in higher education, straight up application into schools with minuscule admission rates, the best of the elite. I'll be joined by Lori Kopp Weingarten of One Stop College Counseling, who specializes in this very niche. She's placed kids in top 25 schools for over a decade. Lori Kopp attended the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, where she graduated summa cum laude and was elected to Phi Beta Kappa and Beta Gamma Sigma Honor Societies. She worked in marketing for several Fortune 500 corporations until she decided to pursue an MBA at Harvard Business School. After returning to New Jersey, Laura Kapp and her partner, Elsie Koo, co-founded One Stop. In a role as chief educational consultant, Lori guides students through each stage of the college admissions process. Awarded the CEP by the American Institute of Certified Educational Planners, Lori Kopp has been recognized for achieving the highest level of competence in her field. She's also been regularly featured in numerous newspaper and publications focused on college admissions. Lori Kopp, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here, Alex. I wanted to start off by talking about your sort of background. Could you share a little bit about what got you into college consulting and what your background is? Sure. So it's a little bit of a roundabout path, but I think everybody kind of zigzags through life nowadays instead of a straight linear path. When I was in high school, I must have been a weird high schooler because I was really interested in college admissions. And I was reading all the guidebooks and I was learning about every college, even though I knew I wasn't going across the country. My parents had given me a four-hour direction span each way. So they said, I can go anywhere from Boston to Washington. But yet I was reading about every college in the country. I was like this little walking dictionary of colleges. And then when I got to college, so I attended University of Pennsylvania, when I arrived, I immediately got involved with the admission office and volunteered for them. I was what they called an admission sitter back then, which basically just spoke to incoming students and told them all about Penn. And then I became a tour guide for all four years. So I was very involved. And then when I graduated, I immediately signed up to be an alumni interviewer. And after decades of doing that, the admission office or the alumni interviewer people in charge asked me to work at some college fairs and do other things for Penn. All along, I was still working in marketing from the time I graduated Penn. Then I got married. I had kids and I decided to take some time off. But I always had this in the back of my head. I'm really interested in college admissions, some kind of college admission nerd or something. And when I was ready to go back to work, I found out that this is really an industry. You can be an educational consultant or an independent educational consultant. And I started researching it a little bit. And the rest is kind of history. I we founded One Stop College Counseling in 2012, and we've been going strong ever since. Well, I have to say that's a pretty unique answer. Um, I don't think there are too many people who grew up 
loving to research different colleges that they weren't even going to. I think most people have found college counseling along the way in their careers. So I found that interesting. Could you explain sort of what makes your, you know, one-stop CC unique? How would you describe its sort of core mission beyond the surface goal of like placing kids in college, right? Right. So a few things I think make us unique. I mean, one thing before I get into what we do that makes us a little unique is that anybody can be a college admission counselor. Literally, like Alex, you could tomorrow say, I'm an independent educational consultant and you can be one. There's no barrier to entry. There are barriers to the different organizations you can join and that's how you get some credibility established. Like IECA, like HECA, NACHAC. I mean, there, there are many. ICA and HECA are probably the two most well-known for independent counselors. And then NACHAC is a combination of independents and school counselors and admission officers. So 20% of counselors are affiliated with one of those three organizations. So not that many. That means 80% obviously are not. And then there is one type of board certification you can get, and that's the Certified Educational Planner Acknowledgement, which is a board certification. When I took it, it was six hours. I think they've now limited it to a five-hour exam, but only 2% of counselors have this board certification, 2%. So that is one thing that I definitely, even when I tell people, you know, look around, look at other firms besides one-stop college counseling, I do say, you know, look for the reputation of having that CEP certification. But we are different from many other college consulting companies in that we do specialize in higher performing students. We'll start as early as eighth grade. And the students who gravitate toward us are really highly motivated, self-driven, and they are aiming for highly selective colleges. So one of the things we do that differentiates ourselves from others is we provide them with a very large number of opportunities that they can engage with. Sometimes it's just contests that they can enter. Sometimes it's ways to get publications, you know, ways to get published. Sometimes it's boards and other organizations that allow teams to to become part of their organization. So we really try to focus on helping students build their resume in ways that excite them. So we don't want a student becoming this great volunteer guru and volunteering all over the place if that's not something that they're interested in. But we really try to find out what each student likes and what each student is best at and is passionate about, even though that is an overword used in our industry, and then try to tailor their extracurriculars, help them tailor their extracurriculars toward that. God, that's fantastic. I have a 10-year-old daughter, actually, and uh, you're making me want to sign her up because, <laughs> wow, interesting. Starting in eighth grade and then you kind of steer their interest. That's, that's fantastic. So could you describe the prototypical that you would encounter and the process that he or she would go through? You sort of alluded to it a little bit with a younger student, but maybe take me through to the end as well. Application setting. Yeah. So when we start with an eighth or ninth grader, especially an eighth grader, like we're meeting with a bunch of eighth graders right now, we're kind of setting up the four years of high school for them. Definitely focusing on how they need to perform in high school while also emphasizing they still need to be a teenager. They only get to do their teenage years once. They don't get to repeat their teenage years. So we definitely don't want them thinking about college for every minute 
from eighth grade through 12th grade. But we talk about how the most important thing in college admissions will be their grades. So the first thing they want to do when they get to high school is adjust and learn how to excel in their classes because it is a big step up from middle school and the responsibilities are more and the teachers expect more. And then we also talk about extracurricular activities because that's a big part of the college admission process for most colleges, you know, in that holistic process, they, they really discuss extracurricular activities. So we want to make sure that students are doing things they like, but that they could take it kind of as far as they can get. So we talk about leadership and initiative and being a good citizen and collaboration and all of those things. And we, of course, emphasize that most ninth graders are not presidents of clubs because they're the babies of the high school. But that should be a goal, you know, maybe to get to a place where even if they're not president, they're making an impact in some way. And then we'll talk about when they get a little older in 10th grade, we start talking about testing, which tests should they take the SAT or the ACT. We try to have all our 10th graders figure that out before the summer, because we like our summer after 10th grade to be partially devoted to test prep. And we want them to know before they enter the summer, whether they're doing the SAT or the ACT. And we don't recommend both, you know, take, take one that you like better, that you're going to do the best on. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. No. Right. <laughs> that would be a whole, that'd be twice as much work for, you know, not necessarily better results. Yes. But it is amazing how many students think they're going to take both. I meet with them and say, no, 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 one, take one. You're not, this isn't fun stuff. This is not your hobby. All our students take a diagnostic in March or April of 10th grade. And then we meet and we discuss which test is best for them. And then when they should take it, how they should study for it. And then they study over that summer. Because it's really hard to start studying junior year when you are taking the most rigorous classes usually that you've had so far. So we want the summer to be a time to study, but also to be a time where they can unwind from school. So we don't want their entire summer devoted to test prep. So we spend a lot of time on summer planning every year, starting in eighth grade, (laughs) to make sure it's a productive summer, but a fun summer. So we send out a summer booklet of all different possibilities, including some very unique type of opportunities, things that might make them stand out. And also, you know, many students come up with their own summer plan. They want to start a business or they want to pursue something they don't have a time to during the school year. So summer is a time to relax, but also that summer after 10th grade, we do need them to We do suggest, we don't need them, we suggest that they study for one of those tests so they're ready to go. And then the other things we do with our students is as they start approaching the college admission process in the middle of 11th grade, we start selecting colleges that make sense for them. So we create a list of likely schools, target schools, reach schools, making sure that their list is balanced. We start to talk about possible early decision, early action schools, although we don't finalize that till the summer after junior year. We discuss which schools would make sense to visit. We talk about demonstrated interest. We 
in the summer after junior year, as it gets a little closer to the application process, we are doing interview prep for their college interviews. We do a lot of work on the essays, including a very intensive essay brainstorming session where we come up with the topic that's going to make that help them differentiate themselves from other applicants. And basically from the time somebody hires one stop college counseling until the time they pick a college, we're kind of a consultant ready to go, ready to answer any of their questions, tackle any of the problems that they're facing and guiding them all along the way. Wow. Thank you for that very comprehensive answer. And I think that the timing you mentioned there is just about perfect from all I understand about college consulting and and definitely putting the horse ahead of the cart, I'd say, with all of the timing that you mentioned there. And you're making me think more and more, I really have to take your information down and contact you in about, <laughs> in about three years when my daughter gets to eighth grade. But you spoke about case studies before. Could you share kind of one of your case studies, a sort of notable uh, success, you know, and what led to that student success? So we have had quite a few stories that really are embedded in my brain. I live and breathe college admissions. This is what I do. Even in my spare time, I'm reading reading books on college admission. Um, people will be like, what are you doing for your vacation? I'm like, oh, I have three books I want to read. And I think a lot of people see that with us, like the passion at one stop. We just really have a lot of passion for this. We take it very seriously. And I treat each student as if they're my own. So I literally look at each student when I'm developing their list and think if this were my son or if this were my daughter, and these are their credentials and these are their activities, where would I have them go? So I try to help, you know, we kind of get them young, you know, eighth and ninth grade, they might be motivated, they might be very bright, and they often are very bright, but they're not as mature as a high school senior. So in a lot of ways, I guess I'm kind of like another mom for them, where I'm asking their report cards for every marking period. And I'm asking, you know, what are their updates? What are they planning on doing this summer? So I'm always guiding and giving advice. But some of our success stories, I'll talk about ones from this year. We had a girl who, she probably is on her way to med school, although many students do change their mind once they start college. This girl came to us very focused on, I'm going to go to med school eventually, so I'm going to be pre-med in college. And that probably still is her path. But we give out, as I mentioned earlier, so many opportunities to students, and we saw that she was a really good writer, exceptionally strong. She didn't necessarily believe that. And she kind of thought we were just complimenting her, but we don't really hand out false compliments. We really felt it. So we were encouraging her to apply to certain programs and to try to get her work published. And all of a sudden she was getting things right and left. I mean, the New York Times recognized her. First she was winning things and they asked her to be a judge. That's awesome. Yeah, it was really amazing. And by the time she applied to college, I want to say she had between 15 and 20 major publications already. And she kept saying, I didn't know I was a good writer. I didn't know. Unbelievable. And she's won many awards. She ended up starting a project. I don't want to identify her, but she started a project that is now international that she was able to use her strong writing skills to develop this worldwide project. And she will be entering Yale this September as a freshman, definitely still on the pre-med track, but probably majoring in English, which is which is a great major, by the way, for pre-med, as long as you take your pre-med <laughs> curriculum. So that was one success. 
And then we have, I'm going to talk about one other student. This was a boy who, his mom was very nice, but very much the leader in his process through middle school, entering high school. The mom was kind of, I don't want to say dictating exactly his path, but very strongly giving opinions. And he was prone to follow her. And he didn't really explore anything entering high school. He just figured he would be an engineer and he is on track to be an engineer. Actually, he will be entering UC Berkeley as an engineering student, but we helped him develop a lot of different interests and talents that he didn't really know he had. So again, it's kind of, he had some unique talents and by listing them, I would be identifying him, which I don't want to do. But I'll just say that he had a talent working with children, doing something rather unique that he did every once in a while in middle school. We helped him develop into a full-fledged hobby that he learned so much doing this hobby. He learned about business. He learned about communicating with parents and children. He learned about how to market himself. But in addition, he started to gain confidence. He lacked a little bit in confidence, even though he was a great student. And with different opportunities that we gave him, he learned that he was a great writer. He learned he was a great photographer. He was winning statewide awards in photography. He just learned that even though he can major in engineering, he's not only about STEM. And I think it appealed, he got into so many different colleges, and I think it really appealed to colleges to see that he was a multi-talented student, not just a STEM-focused student. So that, that was a really great story to see this boy really blossom and develop and mature. And so that, that's another one of our stories that we just find as a success. Here are a few things that stuck out to me after a first segment of my conversation with Lori Kopp. I think it's amazing their mission, really finding out what kids like and tailoring the educational consulting experience towards that thing. That really sparked my interest, particularly having a daughter who's about to enter high school, about to enter those years, really pre-high school. She's going into sixth grade, I guess, fifth grade. And I mentioned this to my wife. She was immediately kind of drawn to that concept of what can my child do well and how can they kind of make that shine as they go on to sort of college applications. and. You know, determining really what's going to be the course of their lives. So personally, I was very excited by that type of mission. And I think it's really important in today's contemporary college admissions process where that part of the resume really matters. Another thing that stuck out to me was this concept of a balance between being a teenager and having sort of greater ambitions. When you're talking about kids who have the type of ambitions that these kids do academically, looking at schools like Stanford, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, there is certainly a tendency to push, 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 and to not sort of enjoy those teenage years. And I think that can be a mistake if you take that too far, a sort of Michael Jackson effect, if you will. You know, there was all this speculation about Michael Jackson, if you're not familiar, the Neverland Ranch, like wanting to get back to a childhood that sort of never existed. I didn't know I'd go for the Michael Jackson <laughs> reference there, <laughs> but it's actually perfect. Kids have to be kids. You have to experience that moment in your life, to, at least to some degree, if you don't want to be pining for that for the rest of your life afterwards. It's just not going to be as fulfilling. I don't think you're going to find as much success. 
So I think she's wise to point out that there really has to be a balance between enjoying those teenage years and really thinking about, well, where am I going to go next? Another thing that stuck out to me after that first segment was this concept of the educational consultant sort of acting as another mom, I think is the way that she put it in terms of giving her advice. That might sound maybe to other parents as sort of an invasion of sorts, I guess, but the cliche goes, well, it takes a village. And there should be no shame, I think, in having other adults who are influential and who are interesting and knowledgeable in stepping in and really taking that type of intimate and momentous role in a child's life because sometimes you just need that alternate perspective. I think oftentimes you sort of come to loggerheads with your own child because you've been sort of banging away at all of this for 10, 15, 20 years and it can get a bit stale, can get a bit compacted, maybe is the right word for it. And so you need that really outside perspective in order to sort of convey maybe some messages they're not going to get from you simply because you are their parent. So I really like the way that she said she sort of acts as another mother. We've discussed this a little bit along the way, but when is the ideal time to sort of begin planning for those elite school applications? Is it at birth? <laughs> it seems to be heading that direction anyway. So I will say we occasionally do get calls from parents, I'm not kidding, of three-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds. It's shocking every time. It, it surprises me every time, even though it should no longer surprise me. About a year ago, I got an email from somebody. I thought it was a joke at first. It said, I have a three-year-old, a five-year-old, and a seven-year-old, and we are moving from a state in the South to the Northeast, which state is going to give them the best chance, the, the three of them, the best chance at getting into Harvard. And at first I laughed because I, I, I honestly thought it was a joke. And then I reread it with all the detail and I was like, oh no, they want to know which state to move in to get into Harvard. So I, of course I answered. How would that make any difference? I mean, I suppose if you're talking about a state school, like if you're talking about going to a Cal school, then you would want to move to California, but yeah, it was a crazy question. I will say one thing. I mean, definitely don't need to be thinking about college at birth. And I think it would be a disadvantage because the students would become a stress mess by the time they were five or six. But I will give one piece of advice for any parent who might be listening with younger kids. When I do get calls from not necessarily three and four-year-old parents, parents of three-year and four-year-olds, but when I do get calls from parents of students in elementary or early middle school, the one thing I tell them is have your child academically keep up in two subjects, reading and math. Once you lose math at an early age, it's a struggle to catch up. If you, if you don't know your multiplication tables, you're never going to do that well in algebra or in calculus. And reading, reading helps with speed. It helps with comprehension. It helps with vocabulary. And honestly, it helps them become better writers. When I sit down to review college essays, I know instantly if somebody is a reader, particularly a fiction reader. So I do say advocate reading, you know, encourage your child to learn, to love, to read. So that is one thing I really emphasize. And then I say, and let them be a child. Let them be a kid. Don't try to talk to them about college. We actually had a parent who started SAT tutoring with their child when they were 10. 
And it was really a disaster because when I started with that student at 15 years old, they were already, I know this sounds horrible, they were already taking medicine for stress when they had to prep for SAT. So I can't imagine why. So, you know, we, you don't want to do that. I'm sure you've seen your share of that also, but we like to start with them in eighth grade. The other piece of advice I give younger students who I don't work with is just to tell their parents, let them explore, let them find out what they're interested. Don't pigeonhole them as a soccer player or a baseball player or a dancer or you know, somebody who's going to be this big entrepreneur, let them figure out what they like, let them develop their skills on their own so that in eighth grade, we're ready to go with these are the things we want to pursue and, and definitely open for change. You know, you don't have to do something in 11th grade that you loved as a seventh grader. Totally. Changing gears a little bit here. Could you speak to the impact of the test blind and test optional trends had on elite school admission? You know, I, I think the surface answer is, of course, that while it's, it's skyrocketed the number of applications and accordingly lowered the admission rate to a minuscule, <laughs> minuscule number. But, you know, has this made it more difficult to navigate the process or are there ways to sort of gain an advantage? So unfortunately, test optional, great in so many ways also has its negatives. I I do want to differentiate between this year, the 2021-2022 cycle that just passed versus the 2020-2021 cycle. 2020-2021, there were a lot of kids who simply couldn't test because of COVID. So many of those students who applied test optional would have actually tested with a high test score. So I don't think, even though applications soared, I don't think there was as big a change as we saw this year in 2021, 2022, the majority were able to test. We had a few problems out in the San Francisco Bay area, but most of the other students we worked with were able to test. And if they were a good student, like a straight A student, which many students became during COVID because many high schools gave everybody A's during COVID. That's how it worked. So these kids applying this year, they had A's in junior year in many of them in rigorous courses, and they didn't like their test score. So they were able to test, but their test scores weren't good. So they said, okay, I have a 1200 SAT, but maybe I should apply to Yale because they won't know I have a 1200 SAT. So applications continue to soar. And the highly selective schools are reporting right now that 30 to 50% of their admitted students were test optional, meaning no test scores. Those students, many, the majority of those students, in my opinion, would not have normally been in the pool because people with very low test scores don't usually apply to the most selective schools, thinking that they won't get in. So those students did apply. Many of them were accepted. Even if they weren't accepted at a lower rate, they were accepted. And I feel that they did take the spots of some of the students who normally would have been accepted, making it harder for everybody. So that's pretty much what happened. The way I tell my students to approach testing is I feel that they should take the test. With very, very few exceptions, I encourage all my students to take an SAT or an ACT. Again, not both, one of them, the one they think they're going to do best on. And if their score is competitive for the colleges they are applying to, we submit the score. 
we still don't know what's going to happen in terms of where this test optional movement is going. But I do believe many will remain test optional and it helps many students. So I don't want to give the impression that this is a bad thing. It's very good for kids who just don't test to their ability. But what it's done is kind of turn the college admission process upside down because the applications are soaring, admission rates are becoming minuscule. I mean, I think Harvard in the regular decision round was about 2%, just over 2%. So very, very difficult now. So it's changing and it's it's scary and it's causing stress among students and parents. And then what about the students who are kind of borderline? Do they submit the score? Do they not submit the score? We literally go through college by college and say, submit here, don't submit here. And then of course, there's the test blind movement where there are some schools have no testing. They won't look at test scores, but they won't look at test scores that are SAT or ACT, but some of them will look at AP and IB scores. So it, it gets very confusing. And this is what I do with my families. I literally say, submit this score. Don't submit this score. Try this. Yeah, you got to go case by case. Case by case. It's changing world. I wouldn't want to be an admissions officer at one of those places right now. Oh my God, their lives must be miserable the last couple of years. They're telling me, you know, I spend a lot of time speaking with admission officers. They're telling me it's taking longer to to go through the file because they have to do a deeper dive into the transcript. They've always done a deep dive into the rigor and the grades, but now it's even more because they need to figure out what does this A in this high school mean? How rigorous is this? So yeah, not easy to be an admission officer. In terms of course selection, what should a high schooler sort of be thinking about if they've got an eye on these competitive schools? So this is something we talk about with every student every year because it does change based on how they're doing in the current year. But the goal is to challenge themselves, but not overwhelm themselves. So if you're going to challenge yourself by taking all honors starting in ninth grade, which is what I suggest if you are trying for the most selective, it is not what I suggest if you are not trying for the most selective. But the problem is a lot of kids in eighth grade don't know yet where they're going to fall and what they're going to be trying for. So But I do explain that if that's your goal, you want to start ninth grade, all honors. And unfortunately, some high schools start with APs in ninth grade, which I'm not a big fan of. Unbelievable. I know. Unbelievable. (laughs) We have a few here that they don't even take, they never take honors bio, honors chem, or honors physics. They only take AP bio, AP chem. And it's for some, it's a disaster, to be honest. It's, It's not a good way for them to start high school with We had a student this year with AP Bio and AP Economics, ninth grade. It's quite a shock for them. And for the ones who can do it, great, if it's not a problem. For the ones who can't do it, it gets them off to a not very good start in high school, and it really doesn't do much for their self-esteem. So I ask for marking period grades every marking period so that we can make changes if we have to. And I ask students, if you're struggling in the month one, let me know immediately so we can figure this out because we're not trying to overchallenge you. We want you to show a challenging schedule, but not a ridiculous schedule where you're doing six hours of homework a night. Right. Well, I imagine your transcript sort of speaks to your personality a bit. And I guess that's probably what admissions officers are looking at, right? To kind of glean who you are and what your story has been. Yes and no. I mean, I find that with highly selective admission, although they don't want you to be well-rounded necessarily in extracurriculars, they're looking more for specialization. With the transcript, they're kind of looking for those core subjects all four years, English, math, science, 
history slash social sciences and foreign language all five years. And I, and I will emphasize foreign language because I can't tell you how many students want to stop Spanish or French after level two. Not a good idea if you're trying for the most selective schools, even though your state may only require one or two years of foreign language. That doesn't mean the highly selectives like that. So they really want to see those core classes all four years. They're not looking for academic specialization in high school. Got it. Switching gears a little bit again, but I think this is an interesting question for this audience in particular. What's the ideal level of parent involvement in this process? And and what happens when you don't achieve this balance? Uh, another interesting thought. So I am sure, Alex, that you see this in your tutoring also. I mean, there are parents who want to basically repeat the process as if they're the child. And there's a lot of we, like we got this score on our exam, or we just took a tour, or we just had an interview with X college. So eventually your child's going to college where the parent won't be. And the parent doesn't know if the kid's actually going to classes or if they're really studying or what they're doing. So high school's a time to let go a little bit. I mean, we do have both extremes. We've had a few instances where I've actually asked the parent to become more involved because the child's struggling or not responding to what they're supposed to be doing in the admission process. But more often, we have the parent who's over-involved. And again, I'm a parent, you're a parent, I understand why that's happening. But some of these parents are taking over the process. I mean, we've had situations where a parent's actually writing the email for the student on the student's email address or the essay. And it's really very easy to distinguish writing of a 45 or 50-year-old from a writing of a 17-year-old, even a strong 17-year-old. So we, we've definitely had that. But the parents should be there to support, to encourage, to discuss. But they need to let the child take the reins of this process, and more so as they get older. So we definitely expect more parental involvement from an eighth grader, from the parent of an eighth grader, than the parent of an 11th grader. And I mean, part of this, again, you know, I look at this student as if they're my own child and I want to see them develop. I want to see them mature. I want to see them grow. So I will push back and say, oh, please let your child drive this process to a parent. Because I've, I've had situations where the parent will email me and say, let me tell you about my student's interview at, you know, Case Western University. And I'll say, were you in the interview? And then they say, no. And I say, oh, okay. So let your child tell me what happened. Because you know. Right. Subtle. Yes. Elbowing. Yeah, a little bit. But I mean, I really, I feel that the students, I, I can't emphasize enough how exciting it is to see a student grow and mature and be able to advocate for themselves because those are also the students who are going to do better in college. The ones who learned how to take the reins and be, be in control. Of course. Absolutely. One thing that stuck out to me about the second portion of my conversation with Lori Kapp was the fact that she said paying attention to reading from a young age really is probably the best thing that you can do. So whether that's reading to them or fostering literacy through other sort of experiences, summer camps or extracurricular activities from a young age is really the number one thing to do. Because, and I think this is almost sort of like backwards planning in a way, like way back, because reading in college becomes the most important thing in almost all fields. 
your ability to sort of digest information at a high rate, being able to process tons and tons of whether it's textbooks or novels, whatever it is, the material really becomes the critical skill in college and really in getting into college too. And a lot of that application process does come around that. That being said, she made the point not to pigeonhole kids from a young age as well. That 15 is not the same as 17, it's not the same as 19. It's important to allow for that growth. You know, see them at 15 as they're gonna be um, at 19. I, I, I think I fall into this trap all the time <laughs> as a parent because it comes up for me with food. So <laughs> if my daughter says, I really like French fries, like I'll serve her French fries and French fries like week after week after week, you know, and it gets to be three years down the road. And she'll be like, dad, I haven't liked French fries since like 1997. <laughs> and I certainly ran into this with my own parents as well. They still think that I like foods that I didn't <laughs> like like 20 years ago, but have changed. I think it's a tendency in parenting to kind of latch on, I guess, to the things that work as sort of a form of connection. It's almost an instinctual biological thing, but it's important to be aware of those things so that you can allow for sort of the fluidity of growth. People change, especially in teenage years, and it's important not to get caught up in those traps. The second thing that stuck out to me was definitely the test optional effect. And this was really something that confirmed what I had been speculating had been an impact for quite some time, for several years. You know, the fact that when you have all these test blind and test optional situations and the application rates skyrocket because there's kids that who would have gotten lower scores who wouldn't even been eligible really to apply to these schools, wouldn't even be considered, have now gotten in. I can't see the argument for that's a good thing. I just don't understand that. I mean, it just seems an awful lot like blind luck, I guess, in a lot of cases, because grade inflation has basically made grades really hard to interpret on any valuable level. I don't really see the argument for grades being that predictive. I suppose you can slice and dice the information to, to, to make, make that sort of case in terms of success rates and metrics, but I just don't buy that argument. Really, it's, as she put it, it's wrecked havoc on the entire system. So I'm curious to see what becomes of those classes that are a bit more scattered, I guess, in the ability level of the kids that are gonna be in there. But I have a hard time thinking it's for the best. So now I'd like to talk about transitioning to these elite schools because just getting in is not the end of the of the process, right? You know, do you find that students struggle in the transition and and in what sort of ways do they struggle when they get to these elite schools? So we actually haven't had a lot of students reporting struggling. I can't even think of any off the top of my head. I can think of one, actually, and that's about it in, in all these years. Most of our students really enter these schools pretty prepared. We do talk to parents about you know, it's not just getting in. Yes, it's great to, to get in and have the bumper sticker and all that. But the goal is really getting out. You want to graduate on time in good standing and able to get a good job or get accepted into a great graduate program. But 
we also have developed over the four years students who know how to advocate for themselves, students who know how to handle problems when they struggle. So when we see students struggling in high school, we go through the different steps they can take, you know, speak to your teacher, get a tutor, you know, all all different ways to advocate for themselves. Time management? Yes. So most of our students, absolutely. And we talk about it. We have book recommendations that we sometimes give out to students who are struggling with time management. But we do find that when they get to college, the majority of our students who are very prepared for these colleges are doing well. We run a transition to college meeting. And in that meeting, we talk about making use of resources. When you get to college, if you find yourself in a situation in any way, academic, socially, extracurricularly that you are having trouble with, reach out, you know, be be an advocate for yourself, be proactive and reach out to the support systems at college. So we really, in our transition to college meeting, which we are doing now with our students about to enter college, we talk about that, about different ways that they can get help and make sure that they are not hesitant. You know, they don't hesitate to do it. Don't wait till the end of the semester when you're failing to get help. As soon as you struggle with the problem, get help immediately so you don't go through the rest of the semester. The reason I ask is because that's what sort of our primary service is, is helping kids who are transitioning to college. And the areas that you just mentioned, really, time management, I think is very underrated. I mean, it's, it's the primary difference in my mind between high school and college in that you're spending most of the effort you're expending for classes in high school is in the classroom. So, you know, I describe it as a 150 hour rule. So if you have a class that's, you know, the total amount of work you're doing for it's 150 hours, right? You know, a hundred hours of that is going to be in the classroom. 50 is going to be on homework, hopefully. And when you get to college, it's kind of the direct opposite. So you maybe spend 50 hours in the classroom if you're going to all the classes and then a hundred of it out of the classroom independently. So you're expected to have a sort of whole new skill set there, potentially that you've never had to before. And it's interesting that you harp on the advocacy and asking for assistance, um, because I guess that is a hallmark of the kids that don't do well in both high school and college is that they are kind of content to let things go to pot. So out of curiosity, what was, you mentioned there was one kid in all these years that you could think of that did not do well with the transition. What was, what was the story there? Yeah, he kind of coasted through high school. This was a kid who was not at a highly selective school. I was working with his brother. They were twins and one was very strong and one was not so strong. And his parents, they weren't really aware of how he was doing in high school. His high school was one of those schools that had many, many levels. So for English, they had about six different levels and they kind of hid the name. But what I told his parents is, this is actually a remedial English class. And they're like, what do you mean it's remedial? I said, yes, this is actually a class that he's been in for now two years that doesn't, not even college prep. It's not prepping for college. They had no idea. So for senior year, they were able to get him into another college prep class, but he wasn't really ready. And it didn't show up because he had A's in his classes, mostly a couple B's, but mostly A's, but they were not rigorous classes. Kind of a high school pushing through, like you know, no child left behind. We're going to just push you through and give you good grades. And I don't think the college picked up on the level of these classes because the names of the classes were 
a little bit confusing and it nowhere was it marked as remedial. It was kind of through my digging that I realized what kind of class this was. And he got to college and he really, I don't even want to say the name of the college, but it was a STEM college. So it, it wasn't a very highly selective college, but it was a selective college. And they do expect you to come in with skills and time, including time management. And he really didn't have it because he, he did about an hour of homework a day. And that's not enough to prepare you for college. He ended up leaving all as well that ends well. He's graduating this year, actually, on time from another STEM college where he was able, it was a little bit of a lower level school. He transferred and he just, you know what, the funny thing is, I think after a year of being in the other school that was a little bit more handholding, he could have returned. I, I didn't advocate for that. He was fine and happy where he was. But I feel like now he's ready to do that kind of work, but he just wasn't. So sometimes you, you know, squeak yourself in, you know, you, you know how to do an application and he had my help and he got into a college and I, I actually had talked to him about getting tutoring over the summer before he entered and all that sort of stuff. But that's, sometimes that's hard for students to understand that they're going to struggle when they get to college until they get there. So he's really the only one that really couldn't, but in a way he did advocate for himself because he transferred and he transferred to a school where he was successful and he is graduating with the job. So yeah, I'll just give you one other quick thing. This is for anyone listening. We've had a lot of meetings recently with some of our sophomores that we're just talking about what's coming up for junior year and test prep and all of that. And we've had a few students in every meeting, we talk about extracurricular activities. And we've had a few students who were rejected for some of the summer programs they applied to or waitlisted. And I'm mentioning this because we just had a, you know, recently a slew of success stories here where I said to each of the students, I'd say it was three recently where I said to them, do you remember we talked about advocating for yourself when you got rejected from the summer program that you really wanted? What did you do? And they're like, nothing. I said, okay, so you want to write to them and ask, you know, do you have a waiting list? Can I apply next year? And what can I do to make my application stronger? All three of them did take my advice and write. One of them is going because they found space for her just from her asking. One of them got an online program where they said we had several people ask and we're now starting an online program for you. So you'll still be part of the program. You just won't be here in person. And one of them got told that they're going to be on the waiting list and it is an active waiting list. But if they don't get it this year, they have a spot for next year. So all three of them, just by writing, asking for further information or further expressing their interest have a positive outcome. So that's what advocating for yourself can do. And I know I'm preaching to the choir. Wow. That's, I mean, that's very interesting. I mean, I think the tendency for all human beings, and I don't even think this is restricted to, to people who are young, but the tendency is to, when you hear rejection to be like, okay, I guess this is a signal. I can't do this. Like, and like that this is not going to work out for me, but simply just asking that question and I guess turning it around so that it, it becomes something that you are sculpting, that it is, you know, something within your control, I think makes all the difference. Yeah. What really excites me is not even so much that they now have this for this summer, but the lesson it taught them, because I feel like these three going forward are going to do this the rest of their life. If they don't get something, they'll keep going, you know, they will be proactive. And I feel like it was a great success story that's going to turn into a life learning, you know, lifelong learning for them. 
Here are a few final thoughts after my conversation with Laurie Kapp. Number one, the pandemic really has de-emphasized test scores and grades, sort of confirming what I suspected the impact was on that whole process. Test scores, because you have the test optional and test blind, so there's a lot more manipulation of that system that can happen. You know, it varies by school, and some are optional, and you know, should you submit them, should you not? In some cases you do, in some cases you don't. But you can basically manipulate that system a whole lot more to the degree that, at least in those couple of years, it wasn't as critical. Nor were grades where grade inflation certainly has been a factor all along, but then now you have, you know, things like everybody gets A's or everybody, everybody passes because of the pandemic or the ability to withdraw from classes. All of that has sort of scrambled the interpretation of grades. What is there left really? I mean, in an application, you're really talking about an application essay, which is notoriously difficult to link to a student at all, but then also you have the extracurriculars. So to me, that's the brilliance, I guess, of Lori Cobb's program. She's become even more important, I would think, because that's exactly what she does. She develops the extracurricular proficiencies of the student. So I think those parents that have worked with Lori Cobb and educational consultants like that to focus on those things are probably counting their lucky stars. The second thing that stuck out to me is just really the outstanding value of beginning with a child when they're in eighth or ninth grade and really forwarding their interests and finding the things that they can actually excel at and where they can apply for awards and honors. She mentioned that result with the girl that published 15 or 20 things and said she didn't even know she was a good writer at the conclusion of all of this, you know, founding this sort of international program. I think that's amazing. And I think that type of resource is so valuable in the age of the internet where there's a billion opportunities, but <laughs> which ones, you know, which ones do you use? Which websites do you use? Which program, which person, what interests? I mean, it's become all the more valuable to have a resource to be able to tell you what to do, where to go. And especially for a kid who's got so many options and possibilities in front of their head spinning like a top. So having somebody say, okay, you're good at art, like watercolor, like, hey, here's an award for that. Here's something you can apply to. Here's a program that's gonna be perfect for you to fill out your resume for this. Here's a way to make yourself look impressive to Yale or another school like that. That sort of, to me, gets around all of those issues that have come up with skyrocketing admissions rates and infinitesimally low acceptance rates. Make yourself stand out with those other parts of the resume. So I'm saving her number personally. <laughs> and I think she's just an, an outstanding resource.